Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, are you guys ready for the word in the room? Are you ready for the word in your house? Okay, I felt that clap through the screen. This is weird. I've, I haven't talked in front of people for like 18 weeks, okay? I'm used to staring at a camera in my basement alone, which is an introvert's like dream, David Escobedo. For people like me who love being around people, it is like going to hell. And so I am really grateful to be in a room with some people tonight and uh, with those of you who will be joining us uh, next week at church. But this morning, tonight, if I get those mixed up today, that's fine. Um, We are going to be going back into a series we've been in for the last couple of weeks entitled Vintage Church, a model for the modern world. And we've been taking a look at the early church in the book of Acts and the model that was established for us as they showed us what church is supposed to look like what the DNA of our community is supposed to feel like. And we've been doing the compare and contrast, looking at the vintage church versus the modern church and allowing the Holy Spirit as best he can to uh, convict us and adjust us accordingly so that we can become a little closer to the model that they established for us. We're gonna continue on in that today. Uh, In week one, we talked about the fact that the vintage church was birthed in supernatural unity, that there was this, this glue that held all of them together. They came from every which way walk of life, every tribe, every tongue. They looked different. They talked different. They had different customs, different cultures. But when Jesus showed up on the scene and the Holy Spirit was poured out, all these people from a bunch of different backgrounds came together around the name of Jesus. And despite their differences, they were united. And that unity created this environment and this atmosphere where all of the other incredible stuff that we read about in Acts chapter two began to take place. And we entered into some of those incredible things in week two of this series, as we begin to unpack what the theologians call the pillars of the New Testament church. And pillar number one, we talked about fellowship and community. The fact that we were designed to be in relationship with one another. And if you didn't catch that message, my beautiful bride preached an amazing message about what is the heartbeat of the church here at the Father's house, the the family, the the becoming family that we talk about all the time around here. Uh, The week after that, we talked about the second pillar, which was a devotion to the apostles' teaching or a devotion to the word of God. And then last week, my good friend, and we can give him a hand here in the room, Pastor Jules Moore of TFH Oakland. We love you, Pastor Jules. Uh, He preached an amazing message about being committed to a lifestyle of prayer. And today we're gonna jump into the fourth of those pillars. And uh, I'm excited to bring the content to you today. Um, Although I I know that it will be a little bit challenging for some of us to receive. And uh, before we even dive in and look at our our key text in a moment here, uh, I just need to remind all of us in the room and watching today uh, of a truth about scripture that sometimes we we seem to forget. It's very easy to forget because uh, we like to operate sometimes in our natural human nature. But it is important when we study the word of God and when we study scripture, that we remember that the Bible is not a buffet. The Bible is not a buffet. The Bible is not a buffet. Thank you. Amen. Say amen through that mask. I get it. Yeah, like how many, how many of you are buffet people? Anyone like buffets? Anyone like really all about a buffet? Okay, I got a few people here. Anyone watching? You're, you're all about the buffets? Real talk, I am all about a buffet. I love a buffet. One of my first jobs was at a buffet. I worked at Fresh Choice. May God rest its vegetarian soul. It no longer exists. I miss that place. But I worked at Fresh Choice and I could eat all the food I wanted for a dollar. It was the best job on the planet. But I found out shortly after I got married that 
I'm the only one in my family that likes buffets. That in fact, my wife, she thinks she's too good for buffets, okay? She's, she's a little too bougie. Her culinary palate doesn't quite equate to what the buffet has to offer. And you know, had I known that before we got married, maybe it would have changed things, I don't know. But uh, when I worked at Fresh Choice, she used to come in all the time and visit me. So I just assumed that she liked buffets. Turns out she was just interested in something that wasn't on the menu. Um, hey, <laughs> talk about that. But yes, I do love a good buffet. I will get down on a good buffet. And the reason I like buffets is the same reason those of you who raised your hand or are watching at home like buffets. And that is because the beauty of a buffet is that you can eat as much of what you want as you can possibly stuff into your body while you ignore the things that you don't really care for. You can indulge in the good stuff and you can ignore the stuff that, ah, I'll just pass that up. I'm not really interested in that. And uh, I, I, I'm more of a pasta person. I don't really like, you know, the, the vegetables. So I'm gonna pile up on the linguine. I'm gonna pass over the lettuce. And, and then when it comes to dessert, come on, buffets are the best for dessert. You, you pay like $85 for like this dessert at a restaurant. And you're like, really? That's what I got for all the money I just spent? No, no, not at a buffet. At a buffet, you can stack up five brownies, make a leaning tower of ice cream, put some sprinkles and some chocolate sauce on top of that. And people don't judge you at a buffet when you walk back to the table with that. They all know why they're there, right? They're giving you the nod of approval as you go by like, that's right, boy, come on, get your buffet on, yeah. No one's judging you. Like that's, that's the beauty of a buffet. But often, I've experienced this and probably you have as well, people can begin to look at the word of God as if it were a buffet where we kind of pick and choose the things that we like about scripture, and then we just sort of pass over the items on the menu that we're not interested in. Like, okay, um, I'll take a little bit of the blessing, and I'll take some of the provision and the protection. Oh, I need some salvation. Let me put a little salvation on my plate, you know, because I don't want to be charbroiled and, you know, and, and bake and H-E double hockey stick. So I'm going to take the salvation, and then, oh, you know, I, uh, I, I'm just not really in the mood today for serving. I'm not really in the mood for persecution Oh, you know, sexual purity. Oh, that hurts my little tum-tum. Um, I, I, think, I, I think I'm gonna pass on the tithing and I'm just, I'm gonna just, I'll just, I'll take the stuff I like and I'm gonna leave the rest of the stuff. That's how so many people treat scripture. In fact, Paul warned us about it in, in, in the book of Timothy where he said, in the last days, people are gonna try to find preachers that just tell them what their itching ears want to hear. They're gonna preach the buffet gospel where you can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but you can leave the stuff you don't like on the side. Well, I'm not a buffet preacher. This ain't a buffet church. Jesus ain't like that. The word of God is a full meal deal and we gotta take it for what it says. You're clapping now, but you haven't heard what we're talking about yet. So as we go to the word today, it's important to remember hey, the scripture is not a buffet. We can't take and pick what we like and get rid of the rest. No, we need to embrace it all. So as we get into a subject that many people pass over on the menu, one that you know, causes a little bit of spiritual indigestion sometimes, uh, it's important that we keep our hearts open and that we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us as necessary. In fact, I wanna pray that as we jump in to Acts chapter two again. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it does have the power to change us. Your word, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and, and spirit. It gets right to the, to the marrow of where we're living. And I ask today that by your word, you would appeal to every heart. Those of us who maybe haven't gotten this particular pillar sorted out in our life, I pray that it would be established today as we study the vintage church and the values, the pillars, the, the DNA that they operated in. Let that be said of not just our community here at the Father's house, but of every individual that's watching today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Acts chapter two, verse 42, our key scripture. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. 
end of prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and their possessions and they shared the money with those that were in need. Now, pause there for just a moment, just for clarity's sake. Uh, this was not everybody selling all of their stuff and their home and everybody kind of became homeless and they lived in like these, you know, these camps outside the, the city. It wasn't like that at all. What, what the scripture's telling us here is that people were selling what would be considered their extra homes or their extra possessions. It was, a, it was like the inheritance. In those, day, land, those days, land and, and possessions were the inheritance you would pass on to your children. And so when people sold their land and when they sold their possessions, it was actually like dipping into our 401k, if you will, or dipping into their futures and saying, I'm gonna sell the things that I don't need today. I'm gonna get rid of the things I don't need today because I'm gonna take care of the immediate need of people that are around me, just for clarity. It says, they worshiped together at the temple each day and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, come on, each day, not every Sunday, not you know once a month, someone would lift their hand in church and get saved, but each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's the, that's the vintage church. And, and it is impossible to talk about the original church, the vintage church, without talking about generosity, without talking about this spirit that compelled them to give like crazy. The, the vintage church didn't just see it a priority to meet together in fellowship, to pray, to devote themselves to the word of God, but there was this incredible devotion to generosity. Uh, the, uh, the writer Luke here in the book of Acts, he, he kind of unpacks it and, and brings a little bit more clarity to it. Just a few verses later in Acts chapter four, verse 32, where he says, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was on them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Generosity was an undeniable ingredient in the vintage church. They saw it just as spiritual. Like think about this for just a moment. They saw it just as spiritual to put an offering in as it was to stand for an hour in prayer. Just as spiritual to give to somebody in need as to crack open the word of God and to read it. Just as, it was, it was equally as important to them. And as a result of the priority they placed on generosity, it says that nobody among them had a need. Can you imagine a church like that for a moment? Where there was not a single person in the community that had a need. If there was a need, it was immediately met by somebody. Someone over here had a need, someone over here took care of it. Like literally, they, they had such a responsibility for one another that the moment a need arose in their community, somebody would literally get rid of what they didn't need so that they could take care of what somebody did need. We're not talking about just like, hey, I need to borrow your pickup truck or you know, can, I, can I borrow your sweatshirt? I forgot mine at home. This was like, hey, I, I will literally take all the shirts off my back. I will sell my property. I'll do whatever I need to do to make sure that your needs are met. That was radical generosity. Now, let me address an elephant in the room and probably something that someone's already wondering and their palms are sweating. Knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on their sweater already. Mom's spaghetti. Is this like where Pastor Tim tells us that we need to like sell our houses and all of our cars and all of our stuff and give all the money to the church? Because if so, I'm out. I'm finding another church. What a great season. I don't, he doesn't even have to see me leave because I'm at home right now. Like I can go somewhere else. I can go tune into somebody else's online service. 
No, that's not my motivation for this sermon, okay? That's not what I'm trying to get you to do, like, you know, work you, twist your arm, and get you to give everything to the church. That's, that's not the motivation here. Some of this needs to be contextualized a little bit. Remember, when the church started, it was made up of 3,000 people from day one that did not live in the city where they found themselves in. These were travelers from all across different regions and different parts of the area. And so when they showed up in, in Jerusalem and they gave their life to Jesus, they didn't have jobs, they didn't have houses, they didn't have the means to provide for themselves from that point forward, but everything had changed. And now all of a sudden, they're all hanging out in a city that they didn't live in. And so when it says that everybody started to sell what they had so they could provide for the needs of their community, it was because the community, these 3,000 people that showed up on their doorstep, they had nothing. And so there was sort of this immediate need to make sure that those who were around them were provided for. And because of the immediate need and the nature of that need, it compelled them to do something pretty radical. So we need to contextualize this a little bit, okay? Like if somebody just tries to work you and say, sell everything and give it to the church, okay, well, unless 3,000 people show up on my doorstep tomorrow, then we're not quite there yet, okay? <laughs> but, but, the, but the second reason I would never ask you or motivate you with a message to try to give like this is because that's not what happened in the scripture, that's not my job. It's not my job to try to work people to give. There's not anything in the scripture that says, and you know, the apostles, they uh, showed pictures on the screen of hungry children in other countries so that like there was no, there was no sermon here. There was no teaching to try to compel people to give. Rather what Luke is showing us in this scripture is what we would call the natural byproduct of faith the natural outflow, the natural expression of people who have encountered Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave, and when the spirit of Jesus enters into a person's heart, suddenly they receive the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same spirit that Jesus carried, and because Jesus was a giver, now suddenly we become givers. It's the natural thing for a believer to do. The apostle James says it like this in James chapter two. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but they have no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, it's what? It's dead. It's useless. What James, what Luke, what, what, what the scripture is telling us here is that nobody should have to compel a Christian to give. Nobody should have to work a believer to be generous. If you have a genuine faith, you're gonna give. It's just the way it works. The same spirit in you is the spirit that was in Jesus, and Jesus is a giver. And so no one should have to twist your arm to get you to give. Yet, that's not really how it works these days, is it? That's not normally how it happens in church. That's not normally how people are compelled to give. Normally, the, the pastors are not trained to just sit back and hope that the Holy Spirit tells you one day to give a tithe of your income to the house. We teach on it all the time. We talk about it all the time. Everybody's watched the evangelist on the television, Billy Bucksuck, who's out there trying to get you to give some money to his cause, and I'll send you a gallon of Miracle Spring water if you just give to the house of God today, like... People fall into that kind of stuff all the time. We've all been there. Well, the, you know, the, the screen is showing the, the, the poverty in another country and the emotional music is playing behind and it's trying to compel people to give. We've all been in that setting before, right? But before we throw the stones at the TV evangelist or the, the, the missionary or the group that's trying to raise money for the cause in another country, let's, let's step back for a moment and take a look in the mirror. 
Perhaps the reason this culture of compulsory giving, emotional giving exists in church, isn't because every single preacher who asks for money is greedy, isn't because every single preacher is trying to get a new jet that they can fly from one side of the country to the other with. Maybe part of the reason this problem exists is because the modern church doesn't operate like the vintage church. Maybe part of the reason that people have to compel others to give is because for whatever reason, they've ignored the compelling of the Holy Spirit to live generously. See, when I, when I think about the church today versus the vintage church, like that's not really the picture we see. We don't see people laying down everything all over the place so that they can serve the others in their community. So I have to wonder, what is... What does our church look like compared to the vintage church? What does our life look like compared to the vintage church? And before I make you answer that question uncomfortably personally, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me just take a moment and brag on our community and our church for just a moment because this is a question that our church has taken very seriously over the last couple of months and a question that I think has caused us to, to do some things that has proven that we want to and we desire to be like the vintage church. Uh, one of the values around here at the Father's House, you've seen it plastered on signs around here, you've seen it on the website, is that we live generously. That's one of our values. We truly believe it's better to give than receive, to serve rather than to be served. We are lavishly generous with our time, our resources, and our talents, and we look to serve others at all times with what we have. Uh, if you know my wife and I, that is a value that we try to embrace every single day of our lives. We believe that God has gifted us with generosity and God has positioned us to be generous to other people. We take that very seriously. And since God's put us in charge of this church, this is gonna be a church that lives the same way that we do. We're gonna live generously. We're gonna look for every opportunity to bless other people. And we've done a lot of that over the last couple of months. Um, as you'd expect since COVID began, uh, the Rona, as since it began, uh, we have seen a dramatic increase in the number of requests for financial assistance from the church. People asking every single week, need help with, you know, with groceries or with rent or, or whatever the case may be. Some who didn't qualify for unemployment, some who are waiting on unemployment, uh, others who didn't qualify for the food distribution program in their neighborhood, others that needed basic necessities. And we made a decision on March 14th when all of this happened that we were gonna use this season to be an Acts 4 kind of church. We wanted it to be said of us that there was not a need that we could not meet in our community of believers. And, and to the best of our ability, we have let our, our, we've been a channel of blessing and we've let resource flow through us so that we can bless other people in our church who needed it in this season. Some of you have benefited from that. But I, I just, I wanted to add up this last week as we got to July 1st and we started looking at, at this and I wanted to see, hey, what, what have we actually done? Like realistically, what have we done? And I was blown away by our church's generosity. Check this out. As of this last week, so uh, July 1st, I'm happy to report that our church has given away $57,460 to people in need, to missions organizations, and to outreach groups in our city. Come on, no, we can crap a little bit better than that. That's significant. For a church that's not even two years old to be, give, be giving away almost $60,000 in a couple of months, that's incredible. That really is incredible. Beyond that, We've taken responsibility for the needs of people outside of our community. 
We, we've fed those in our, in our area who are under-resourced. And many of you know we have a food pantry on Thursdays. And uh, we, woo, there's the woo girl in the audience, yes. We have a food, we have a food pantry on Thursdays. And at the begin, uh, beginning of, of this whole season, um, many of the other food pantries in our district shut down because people were either immune compromised or didn't feel comfortable going out and serving. And a bunch of people in our church stepped up and said, we wanna volunteer, we wanna feed those in our community. So we stepped up and we took on literally double the number of people that we fed every single week through our pantry. In fact, there was a moment, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, but we still serve on Saturday mornings, yes? Yes is the answer, okay. So we also took responsibility for another pantry that exists in our community, a church that was unable to, uh, house, or to, to bring enough volunteers in to serve, and so we took responsibility for that one as well. And even as recently as this last week on Thursday, uh, the food bank, who normally supplies all the food for our food pantry, uh, they shut down on Thursday and Friday for the holiday. And we said to ourselves, well, we've got over 100 families that are gonna show up and they still need groceries. We can't like not feed people just because it's a holiday weekend. If anything, they need more food this weekend than they would need during the, you know, the normal seasons. And so we went out and we personally shopped for every single person who was gonna be showing up to our pantry. And we broke every record this last Thursday and fed more people than we've ever fed before. And it was without the help of the government because the church was doing what the church was supposed to do. But wait, there's more. Not only have we taken responsibility for people in our community when it comes to the food pantry, not only have we given a bunch of money away, but I have heard story after story after story after story from people in our community who have used their life and their resources to be generous to people during this season like never before as well. I have gotten text messages from people who bought groceries and brought them to someone's doorstep and dropped them off when they didn't have them. I got stories from group leaders who told me that there was someone in their group whose laptop got stolen or a car got broken into and they replaced all of that. People have given away cars in the midst of this season. Like, um, text after text after text. Like, I'm here to say our church gets this. Like, as a community, as an organization, as the Father's House San Francisco, we are living generously. We are doing the best we can to embody and embrace the vintage church DNA and to be generous to those around us. We get it. But <laughs> you can't ride the coattails of your church. You, you can't capitalize on what a bunch of other people are doing. Like, see, we're doing it. Because yeah. I said at the beginning of this series, and I've said every single week, the purpose of these sermons is not to get you to look at the church and either point the finger or pat the back. It's about making this all personal. So let me ask you, when it comes to generosity, are you operating like the vintage church did? How you doing? Like, I'm not a condemning question, just an inquiry. How, how are we doing when it comes to our generosity? If we compare our lives personally to the model that's been established for us, could we say that we got it, like we're doing the stuff? Because listen, you, you, can have, you can have the pillar of fellowship and you can have the pillar of devotion to the word of God and you can have the, the pillar of prayer. But just like any house that's missing a few foundational pillars, it's gonna crumble if you don't have them all in place. You can try to do everything else and avoid this one and avoid the conviction of the Holy Spirit in this area. And it's only a matter of time before it comes crumbling down because this is an absolutely imperative practice, an absolutely necessary part, the fabric, the DNA of the church of Jesus Christ. We have to get this one. And so if you would say, I feel like maybe this pillar is not well established in my life that I wanna help you in our last couple of moments today. 
I, I don't wanna help you because I wanna emotionally compel you to give or twist your arm or you know, because the church needs all your money. Although if you got an extra house laying around in San Francisco, I'll take it off your hands. Um, but make it out to me personally, not the church. Uh, no, because I want you to get this for you. I, I want you to understand what it looks like to live in the joy and the blessing of generosity. So come back to the text with me for a moment. Acts chapter four, verse 32. Here's the key to establishing this pillar. It says that all the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything that they had. It's a massive statement. They were united in both their heart and in their mind. They were united in their heart. Their faith was all attached to the same man named Jesus Christ. There was this unity around the name, around the person who gave his life for every single one of them. They were united there. And because they were united there in their heart and in their faith, they were united in mind. That is the way that they acted upon what they believed. Their thought process about what do I do with what's going on in here? They were all united in that. And because of this beautiful unity, they found themselves in a culture of generosity. The unity gave birth to generosity to the point where it said that they thought that what they owned was not their own and so they shared everything. Now, for like a casual glance at that scripture, it kind of feels like, you know, okay, is this like, are we just talking about like socialism here or like kind of borderline communism? You know, it's like nobody owns anything. Everything that everybody owns is everybody's. Is that what we're talking about? Is that what the church is supposed to be like? You know, kind of this thought that like, hey, if I walk into your house and I like your TV, I'm like, I like that TV. I'm gonna go ahead and take that home with me. No, that's not generosity. That's burglary, okay? Like that's, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. I think to call this socialism or communism is a very lazy exegesis of the scripture and it's inaccurate in, in nature. Because when it says that what they believed was not their own, uh, is not to say that they thought that everything they owned belonged to everybody else. That, that's, a, that's a poor understanding of this scripture. Rather, what Luke is trying to display for us here is a conviction, an ideology, a practice that the New Testament church bought into and we have to buy into as believers in Jesus Christ. If we're gonna truly say he's Lord of our lives, we have to get this. And, and the principle that's being established for us here is stewardship. Stewardship. You and I are called to be stewards. Look at the person next to you and say, you're a steward. Come on, look at the person next to you in the living room. You're a steward. Not, not like steward, not steward. You're a steward, okay? Someone got that joke. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Janice. <laughs> We're called to be stewards. The, uh, the New Testament word steward is rooted in the Greek word oikonomos, which means to manage something on someone's behalf. To manage something on someone's behalf. It's like a manager at a company. So if you were elevated to a position of management at a company, you're not the owner, you're just the manager. All right? You, you don't get to make the visionary decisions for the company. You don't get to direct the finances of the company. You've been given an area where you have authority and your job as a manager is to treat that area as your owner wants you to treat it. So the owner of the company says, here's my vision, here's my plan. I want you to execute my vision and execute my plan. If you start treating the finances or the people or the area that you've been entrusted with like the owner, then you've overstepped your authority, you've overreached, and you're acting outside of accordance with the heart and vision of the owner. That's what it means to be a manager or to be a steward. And the New Testament church, this is how they operated. The vintage church, they literally thought their life was to be stewarded for the grace of God. Whatever God asked me to do, everything I am, everything I own, it all belongs to God. And I see my life 
all of it through the lens of a steward. That's how I'm supposed to operate. I can tell some of you still don't get it. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a little bit of an example here tonight. Um, Smarty, can I borrow you real quick? Come on up on stage real quick. Give it up for Smarty as he comes, even in your house. So I'm gonna play God in this scenario. <laughs> how typical. And you're gonna play Smarty, okay? Um, I have here $1,000, okay? $1,000 in my hand. It's not Monopoly money, it's the real deal. As the owner of this $1,000, I'm going to entrust it to you. And as I give it to you, I'm going to ask you to do what I want to be done with it, okay? You think that this is income you've earned because you worked 40 hours this week and so you get this money, but actually this is mine and I'm entrusting it to you. And since I'm entrusting it to you, I have a vision for it. I have a plan for it. You're just the manager. You're not the owner, okay? So I'm gonna give this to you, but I want you to do what I tell you to do with it. You got it? If you don't do what I told you to do with it, I'm gonna take it all away. But if you do what I told you to do, then I'm gonna entrust more to you, okay? So here's $1,000. Now, the first thing I'd like you to do is I want you to prove to me that you know that I provided it to you in the first place. And the way you do that is I want you to give me a tithe. I want you to give me a tenth of your income, sew it into my house, sew it into my bride, give it to, now if you're wondering what a tenth is, 10% of a thousand is a hundred dollars, okay? And so it's, it's just math, it's really hard. So could, could you give me back a hundred dollars of my own money, would that be okay? Thank you very much, man, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Now, you know, I know that it only costs you $500 to live this week, okay? And I know that your bills are gonna be well taken care of with that $500. And so I've got a vision for some of the other money that you've got beyond what you need. Um, my, my friend, uh, my friend uh, Jonah over here, he's right over there. So Jonah's a barber. You know what that's like, because you're a barber, right? And all the barber shops are shut down and people haven't been able to earn an income. So Jonah, would you come up here real quick? I'd like you to give my friend Jonah here, I mean, it is my money anyway, right? So I'm allowed to do what I want to do with it. So as the steward of my resources, would you give my friend Jonah your $100? Because it would really help him out right now because he needs it. If you want it six feet away, okay, perfect. Just like that. Thank you, Jonah. You can, you can take that back to your seat, okay. Now, you know, there's other people who are suffering right now as well. My, my, uh, my friend Celso over here, um, him and his wife, they actually run a cleaning company and uh, they haven't been able to enter into people's homes for a really long time, you know, because of the shutdown. And so, I mean, you only need 500. You still have $800 left right now. So would you do me a favor and go take care of my buddy Celso over there? And would you give him $100 while, while, you're, while you're, you know, just taking care of my resources and stewarding them for, and actually while you're over there, my friend Carlos, he used to drive for Uber before all of this happened. And, you know, people are scared to get into Uber cars with people right now because, you know, if the Uber driver starts coughing, then, you know, you, you catch the Rona. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, could you give $100 right now to my, my friend Carlos as well? So, 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 so you should have, let's see, you got one, two, three, so you should have $600 left right now, right? It's only going to cost you $500 to live this week. You know what? I love you so much. I'm going to let you keep that extra $100. You can put that in savings. You can store it up for your daughter right now. You know, she's going to get older. She's going to go off to college, get married one day. So you can, you can save that $100. I know you don't want to think about the fact she's going to get married one day because she's a little baby right now, but she's going to have hair on her armpits one day. It's going to be crazy, okay? So you can take all 600 of those dollars, and man, you can have a great week. Put the other 100 in savings and pay off your bills. It's going to be a good week, all right? Thanks for coming, man. Thanks for, thanks for being a steward of my resources. Come on, give it up for Smarty. That's what living like a steward looks like. That's, that's, what it, that's what it means, to understand that everything belongs to Jesus. All of it is God's. Not just my money, but everything. My time, it's his first. The, the gifts and the talents that he's given me, they're his first. 
Everything belongs to him. It's not my house. It's not my car. It's not my schedule. It's not my future. Those are not my kids. <laughs> You're my kids. <laughs> that one's convenient. But I hope you get what I'm saying. Like all of it has been entrusted to me for a few short years here on this planet. And my job is to steward everything that God has given to me for his glory. That is the pillar that the New Testament church understood. And that is the pillar that we must have established in our lives. And listen, I know that this is a thousand percent easier said than done. It really is. Like this flies in the face of our rugged individualistic, individualistic culture. I can say words. Like in our culture, we, we, we have kind of that mind mentality, the toddler mentality. Like, it's mine, mine, mine. Like, that's, that's how we live. Like, it's my job. It's my future. It's my, my, my. Like, that's where we live. That's the world we live in today. But if we are not careful, we will get caught up in the systems of this world and the mindset of this world and never be used to the capacity that God wants to use us in this area. Let me remind all of us sitting here tonight and watching online, we were not born for this planet. We are only here, passing through temporarily, and we are to use and leverage everything that God has given to us for his glory. I'm not gonna get caught in the rat race of this world where I try to amass more for myself and store up treasure here on earth so that everybody can look at me and say, look how wealthy that guy is, he must be blessed. No, I am gonna store up for myself treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal because I am living for eternity. I'm not living for the here and now, for the next car or the next house. I am living for a line of people behind me in heaven who say I am here because of the generosity and the joy and the reaching out and the, and the friendship of this man. Like that's what I'm living for. That's what all of us need to be living for. But that comes with an understanding that I'm not an owner. I'm a steward. I'm just managing what God has entrusted to me. And so as we conclude and the band comes for the first time I've been able to say that in 18 weeks. I want to invite you in on this journey. I really do. I want to invite you in on this journey of stewardship. I've been on it for 15 or so years now. And I can tell you with all honesty, there's no joy and no peace, no purpose like living this way. I know that's not what the world teaches you, but I promise you there is more peace and more joy and more fulfillment in living like a steward than trying to live like an owner on this planet. Now, the application of this is gonna look different for everybody in the room and everybody watching. You, you know what your situation is and I am not gonna try to give you 17 examples of what you might need to do. The Holy Spirit is gonna be faithful to do that. I'll tell you this, for Robin and I, when we caught this revelation, it looked like us sitting down and going through our budget, line item by line item, figuring out how to pay off all of our debts so that we could literally itemize, prioritize generosity in our budget. We have a line item in our budget for money we give away. Beyond the tithe, we give the first tenths to the house. We've got other things that we've obligated ourselves to for missions and outreach. And then we literally prioritize, just, we don't, we don't have a name attached to it yet. It's free money to give away to people. Like that was what God called us to do. And maybe that's what God would call you to do. But I'm not gonna put that on you, that's not my job. Maybe for some, it's just living with an awareness of the needs of the community around you and going like, oh, I see that. And instead of going, ah, oh, the government will take care of that. Ah, oh, the church will take care of that. Ah, oh, their mom and dad will take care of that. Going, hey, maybe I could take care of that. Maybe I could fill that need. 
because that's what the church has been called to do. So I wanna invite you into that today. If that pillar has not been established, I wanna pray that that pillar would be established in your life. But specifically for those of you that are watching right now, and you would say, I don't know how to establish that pillar because I actually don't have a relationship with Jesus. You're talking about being a steward and stewarding my life, my life for his glory. Well, I don't even know him. So how can I be the manager when I don't know the CEO? Today, I wanna to invite you in on that relationship as well. I'm gonna pray a very simple prayer with you. And as you commit your life to Jesus today, you begin to see your life through this lens. I think everything's gonna change. It's gonna be the greatest decision you've ever made. So here in the room, if you bow your heads at home, do the same. Let me first pray for our community. Jesus, we thank you for the incredible privilege of stewarding what you've given us for your glory. We thank you for showing us the model in the New Testament church, for giving us a template, showing us what happens. You said that as the New Testament church began to operate in this, that not only were the needs of everybody in the community met, but everybody was blessed. You said that the gospel went out with power. Lord, this is what we want. We want to see the gospel go out in power from this place. We want to see lives transformed. And Lord, we covet your blessing. We can't live like this without seeing your blessing on the other side of it. And so I ask right now, not by the words of a, of a person on a stage or by arm twisting or compulsion, but God, by your spirit, would you provoke generosity in every heart that's listening or watching right now? And, and if you're watching today and you would say, Tim, I don't, I don't have that relationship with Jesus and I need to start that. Right now, I'm gonna pray a simple prayer. You can follow along in your heart. Would you say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I didn't realize you were the owner of it, but today I've come to that revelation. You own it all. And so I give back my life to you. And even though it was yours in the first place, help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways, to follow you from this day forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Hey, if you just made that decision, uh, there's a little button that's gonna pop out on our live stream that says raise your hand. And as you click that button, it'll get a little bit of information from you, but don't be scared about putting your information in that, in that little online form there. We wanna connect with you, get a Bible into your hands. We're really passionate about helping people take their next steps around here. We have a group called First 40 that teaches you how to read the Bible, how to pray, what it looks like to be in community with other believers, about baptism, all the really important next steps uh, in this journey of faith. But click that button, or if you're watching on YouTube, you can click the connect link below and give us that information as well. For the rest of you, I can't wait to see you in person. It's just around the corner. We are so excited in this room. We're so excited to be with you guys next week. I love you, and we will see your bright, smiling, masked faces next weekend. Cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.